are less than one week away from, if not the most pivotal election in recent memory, one of the most pivotal elections in recent memory. I know that's an overused phrase. I'm not going to try and say that this is the most important election that we've had uh, in my lifetime, but it's damn close to it. If we don't wrest control from the Democratic Party, not only will the country be imperiled, but certain states may cease to exist as we know it. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another episode of the Jamie Dury Show podcast. If you have not already done so, please subscribe to the show, and you can do so in one of three easy ways. You can either go to the Google Play Store or the iTunes App Store and simply download the free Podbean app, which is at that uh Location, respective locations, and you can search out the Jamie Dury Show podcast and subscribe that way. Or in either of those two app stores, you can simply use the native podcast aggregator app and simply subscribe to the Jamie Dury Show directly. Either way you subscribe, you'll be able to leave comments, reviews. We desperately need both uh, of a positive nature so the show will grow more quickly. So please do so. Please tell your friends about us and uh, leave us a positive review. We really would appreciate it. So why do I say things are so pivotal? Well, certain things are happening now in this country, the likes of which we have not seen in my lifetime. Yes, there have been times like times of war, World War II, where the very future of the globe and international stability were at stake. But here, we have something very unique. First and foremost, we have a president of the United States who was completely mentally incompetent. He is dementia-ridden. It's more readily apparent by the day. And no one wishes to call this out and point this out, including the mainstream media who are supposed to be the watchdogs of truth. No one will point out the fact that Joe Biden has dementia. He is incoherent. He doesn't know where he is at times. He doesn't know who he is at times in terms of he may know his name, but he doesn't know what office he occupies. There are times when he still thinks he's a United States senator. And the fact that no one is mentioning this to ask the very obvious question of who is running the country is scary. We have this man going off on tangents, giving away free money, um, offering to forgive people student loans, although now we see that's being cut back sharply by Congress or by certain governmental regulations. And he's trying to liken Republicans who are objecting to this uh, to people who are feathering their own nest because many of them have private business interests and they received pandemic relief. Well, pandemic relief, uh, first of all, is not on a par with student loans. So let me put this thing to rest. Let's deal with one thing at a time. The pandemic, which was largely created by government scientists scaring people into thinking that it was worse than it was, and the subsequent fallout, was something that people had no choice in. People that ran businesses didn't have an opportunity to stay open. In my own businesses, I was not allowed to open, and in my service-oriented businesses, I was not allowed to work. So we really didn't have any choice. So when the government basically handcuffs and shuts down your business, 
and forces you into bankruptcy or forces you to subsist on a negative income stream, there's a certain obligation there to try and provide some financial help. And if you took a big hit in those years, those loans were forgiven. And those were the conditions under the which they were offered and granted, and people were relying on those conditions in making a determination as to whether or not they were going to apply for them. This is a far cry from students who decide they want to graduate high school and go on to secondary education that they cannot afford, and then further wish to embark on fields of study that have minimal or almost no guarantee of uh, gaining them meaningful employment, whereby they can have the wherewithal and the income to pay back these student loans. That's a completely different thing. I've often given the example on this program of a member of Occupy Wall Street, who was a New York City public school teacher, and he taught art, and he became supposedly disenchanted with the fact that um, the class sizes were oversized and uh, too crowded, and he was working too hard for the money he was making, and he was making quite a handsome fee. So he decided to leave and go on and get a master's degree, for which he spent $35,000. Now, as well-heeled as he was as a New York City teacher and being, I think, a man who was single, you would think he would have had the money. Instead, he borrowed this money. And the theory was that he, when he re, uh, attained this master's degree, that he would be more marketable and he'd be able to secure better employment. Now, quite frankly, I don't know how he arrived at this thinking, given the fact that we later discovered that the master's degree that he obtained was in the very much in demand field of puppeteering, and I say that tongue-in-cheek. Now, as I've said in the past also, I don't know which is more disconcerting and embarrassing, the fact that someone would actually seek a master's degree in puppeteering or that a institution of higher learning in this country offers such a program. This seems to me something you would have learned in the now defunct Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus, and Ringling Brothers was still in business at the time. So you might as well have seen them. But be that as it may, he couldn't find a job. Then he went back to his former principal and asked for his old job back. The principal said he would gladly take him back, but owing to budget constraints and new parameters under which he was operating, he would not be able to take him back on a full-time basis. He'd be going part-time and working for half the money that he had been working for. He became very, very disenchanted by this, took the job reluctantly because he needed the money, and then proceeded to blame the people on Wall Street. They were the, the demons. They were the reasons why he had this problem. No, my benighted friend, you are the reason that you have the problem because you didn't recognize how good you had it in the first place. And in the second place, you were stupid enough to hand over 35 large in order to get a degree for which there is no use. Now, underwriters and creditors shouldn't have to foot the bill for your stupidity. And in a larger sense, this is what many uh, people that are seeking higher education after high school are asking the American taxpayer or institutions of higher learning to do. They want us to underwrite with an absolute guarantee of you getting the loan money to pursue fields of interest that may seem nice and fanciful at the time, but provide virtually no opportunity to recover the investment. Now, 
When you're asking to borrow money, the lenders have a right to ask if you can pay it back. Now, people with money can always borrow money because they usually have things of value they can put up to collateralize the loan. There's very little you can do to collateralize an educational loan if you're a high school student and you don't have anything. The only thing you can do to collateralize the loan is convince the lenders in this case that the field you are pursuing education in gives you a better than uh, 50-50 chance of allowing you to, to obtain gainful employment so that you can pay the loan back. And if that is your situation, I don't think that as we go forward in this country that we're going to be able to simply patently grant people loans without restriction. If you want to borrow money for an education, I think it's your right to borrow it. It is the lender's right to ask that you borrow it, pursuing something that allows you to pay them back. The notion that you're going to take some ridiculous field of study and then default on the loan because you can't find work does not seem right. If you had a board on this lending institution that evaluated the applications for student loans and granted you the loan on the basis that they felt that field of study was going to be in demand four years later when you obtained your degree, and for some reason things changed and moved against you and it wasn't available, well, that's not entirely your fault, and perhaps something should be able to be done about that. But just pursuing out-and-out -out stupidity and expecting other people to foot the bill is nonsense. And Joe Biden blanketly saying he's going to forgive people student loans who exercise poor judgment or who otherwise don't deserve to have their loans forgiven is insanity. I don't care whether you're wealthy. I don't care whether you're poor. I don't care whether you're in between. You borrowed the money. No one put a gun to your head. You have an obligation to pay it back. I paid mine back. Hundreds of other people, thousands of other people, millions of other people paid theirs back. Why should we be asked now to pay yours back? It's just wrong. So to try and equate the two, uh, people who received uh, significant sums of money, even into the millions, to prop up their businesses that were forgiven because of restrictions beyond their control that were foisted upon them by government dictates and people who decided to go out and get a stupid education uh, just doesn't add up. So that's so much for the student loans. But why is this being done? It's being done to entice the voters. And there is a reason why they're enticing the voters. Since August, now this one will drive you for a loop, one of the most significant voter demographic groups, white suburban women, have undergone a 27-point shift to go in favor of Republicans. In August, this voter group was favoring Democrats by 12 percentage points. They now favor Republicans by 15 percentage points. That is a 27-point shift. That is nothing short of dramatic. And absent any monkey business with the people who count the votes, that spells complete disaster for the Democrats. Now, as I said at the beginning of the broadcast, I, I don't want to characterize this as the most important election you've ever had in terms of the national scene, but it is extremely important. But in terms of certain local elections and states, it is perhaps the most important election uh, of my lifetime. 
In my home state of New York, this is absolutely true. New York has been going bluer and bluer and bluer throughout the course of my life. In fact, we have not had a Republican governor since George Pataki, and that was, I think, 13 or 14 years ago. Uh, Andy Cuomo was in uh, three terms as governor of New York, much to my chagrin. And absent his stupidity with the uh, sexual scandals he had and his abysmal performance, as we now know, after the fact during COVID, uh, he probably uh, would not have been elected to a fourth term. But be that as it may, the lieutenant governor, who we left in charge, is running in his stead. She has been an absolute disaster and has shown evidence of being every bit as corrupt as he was, giving out no-bid contracts to certain vaccine and medical companies uh, under the auspices of emergency powers during COVID, which no longer exists, except as a highly contagious, non-lethal virus. It's mutated far away from what it was initially. People shouldn't be running around wearing masks now. You're causing yourself more damage to your teeth and oral health than would justify what you might be incurring through, a, uh, through an infection of COVID. But she's running around and she's ab- actually justifying some of the insanity that Democrats have visited upon New Yorkers. This bail reform where people accused and arrested of second-degree murder are released in one day. No cash bail. And rather than acknowledging the stupidity and the foolhardiness of this, they actually have the unmitigated gall and audacity to run commercials featuring some idiot former police commissioner from Albany, that pulsating nerve center for international affairs, saying that this is a great thing, don't believe Republican scare tactics, and it's kept working families together. What sort of working families is it kept together? What's the new motto? Families that rob, pillage, and plunder together and rape together stay together? I don't think it's kept working families together. All it's done is keep criminals who should be in jail out of jail so they're now free to commit more crimes and kill more people, and that's been happening. And they want you to believe it's all perception. It's not perception. It's not perception alone. People are perceiving what they see. They are seeing with their own eyes. They know things are not right. They know bums are everywhere. They know our border is an open book. They know all of this stuff. This is not a game of perception. They want you to believe it's perception because they want you to vote for them. But it's a fact. New York City is a sink a sink of crime and homelessness. Now, over the last 10 years, this state has lost over a million and a half people who have moved on to greener pastures. 350,000 New Yorkers left since COVID alone. And more have their bags packed as we speak. If Kathy Hochul is re-elected governor of New York, we can't even begin to tell how many more people will leave. I myself will leave. I'm only here now because my son uh, got into a very good high school and I owe it to him to allow him to take that education. As long as I think we can do that safely, I will continue to stay here. But the minute that equation changes or the minute he graduates, my family is gone 
if Kathy Hochul wins, because I can't imagine what sort of insanity is up her sleeve once she's secured four more years, what she will visit upon New Yorkers in both the city and upstate. And as more and more people leave, the people who remain, who make up the tax base, are going to be more heavily taxed in terms of income tax and property tax. They're still looking to go forward with this ridiculous congestion pricing plan, charging people who come into Manhattan below a certain street. Meanwhile, there's no congestion. Traffic into Manhattan has not come back from pre-COVID levels, and I don't know if it ever will, which vitiates the need for any congestion pricing. The only chance at avoiding this is voting for Hochul's opponent, the Republican nominee, Lee Zeldin. You also have a Manhattan DA who is refusing to prosecute entire categories of crimes. Lee Zeldin's election will go a long way to solving many of these problems. First of all, I think he will pull the, the, uh, the plug on congestion pricing. He has already vowed, if elected, he will fire the Manhattan DA, which the governor has the absolute authority to do. He can also displace the mayor. I think he would resist doing that, but I don't think he would have to do that because once he fires the Manhattan DA, Bragg, who no one really likes, I think a lot of these other DAs and the other five boroughs and the mayor himself will snap to attention and start towing the line, realizing there's a new sheriff in town. Once he stops that flight, once people see hope, because, you know, there's an old saying, once a New Yorker, always a New Yorker. When you've lived in New York, back in the day when New York was New York, it's kind of difficult to live anyplace else. When New York is run right and things are going smooth, it really is, for all its shortcomings, a spectacular place to live. Upstate New York is as beautiful and pristine as any place in the country. Long Island has some of the most beautiful beaches anywhere in the country. People who were born here and grew up here really do want to stay here. But there reaches a point where people say, I, I just can't endure it anymore. And people are now at that point. There are, are Democrats who have never voted for a Republican in their lives. Prominent Democrats, including, I learned today while listening to the radio coming into the office, the family of the late columnist Jimmy Breslin who were hardcore Democrats, his son and his entire family are going to vote a Republican ticket because they think things have gone just too far and that the Democratic Party has just gone too far left to the point where they are unrecognizable to the people who supported them years ago, who formed the base of the Democratic Party, and they just are not the Democratic Party of John F. Kennedy and, and the glory days. So I think we're going to see a big change. There is a recent poll... Uh, just the other day, one poll that shows Kathy Hochul's lead coming back. I do not believe that poll. I believe there's nothing that has happened that would cause people to deviate from the trend we have seen over the past month and a half, which is an 18-point lead for Kathy Hochul evaporating into a statistical dead heat and in some polls, a 2 to 4% lead for Lee Zeldin. Given the fact that these pollsters always skew the numbers, you cannot believe these numbers. If they're telling you he's two to four points ahead, he's probably seven or eight points ahead. I do believe that Lee Zeldin is going to be our next governor, and thank God for that. It is the only hope for the state and city of New York. Now, 
keeping that in mind, politics make strange bedfellows. And I was asked by some New York City cop friends of mine, retirees, to address an issue which is probably of concern to every New York City cop, and perhaps to a lesser degree, other New York City uniform services like firefighters and so forth. And so I'm going to address it, and I'm going to explain it and unpack it for you. Despite the vehement anti-cop sentiment that is exhibited by the city of New York on its city council and these DAs and certain segments of the public, the New York City Patrolman's Benevolent Association president, the do-nothing, never-has-done-anything, never-did-anything-as-a-cop Patrick Lynch has endorsed Kathy Hochul. By what sophistry of reason do you do this? How can you endorse such a radical leftist when you have the opportunity to endorse a law and order candidate who will help you like Lee Zeldin? Now, I already know what people are going to say, but I am fully prepared for this because I do my research and I'm aware. And I'm going to give you the Backstory to all this. Back when Governor Andrew, no, I'm sorry, back when Governor Mario Cuomo was seeking a fourth term as governor in the 90s, his popularity had waned. He had been a spendthrift, he had spent the state into debt, and people were fed up. The polls started shifting towards Pataki. And the PBA president at that time, Phil Caruso, who was the best president the PBA ever had and brought the PBA into the modern era and brought many of the programs that New York City police officers now enjoy that did simply not exist before his, his tenure. He endorsed Andrew Cuomo, uh, Mario Cuomo. And many police officers at that time rebelled, saying, how can you in, in, endorse this liberal uh, how can you endorse this man who's anti-death penalty and not endorse Governor Pataki who's promising to give us the death penalty? Well, there's a very uh, simple explanation for that. It takes a few minutes to explain, but it's very understandable once I explain it. First of all, when you're the president of a collective bargaining agent, which the New York City PBA was and is, your main responsibility is to obtain the best employment conditions for your members. To do that, you need a government in place that is sympathetic to your causes and sympathetic to your needs. The city of New York really never was truly sympathetic to the needs of New York City police officers. Mario Cuomo may not have been a pro-death penalty politician. He may not have been the most conservative politician. And he may not even have been a true law and order politician, but he certainly would look like a law and order politician by comparison to these idiots that are abounding now in the Democratic Party. But what Mario Cuomo was, was a man who was very sympathetic to New York City police officers as municipal laborers. And when Phil Caruso realized that he was unable to get the things that he needed for New York City cops through New York City government, he took the legal power of the 
New York City PBA and its law firm and its lobbying efforts. And he went to Albany and he had it done via legislation passed at the state level. One of the many significant things he achieved for New York City police officers was a thing known as the Hart Bill. The Hart Bill is a piece of legislation whereby when a New York City police officer retires, prior to retiring, it is recommended that they all undergo a cardiac screening because that bill details certain conditions which, if discovered by this exam, are assumed by the Hart Bill to have been a direct result of the stress endured by the police officer during his employment as a police officer with the City of New York, and he gets a three-quarter disability pension. Now, my understanding is disability pensions of three-quarters nature, tax-free, are gone as a result of a bonehead move probably made by Lynch, or if he didn't make a move, he allowed it to happen and did nothing about it in the way of protesting. But suffice it to say that three-quarter disability pensions are no longer there. But during that time, three-quarter disability pensions were around, and many police officers uh, achieved that pension via the Hart Bill. Now, this Hart Bill was not a law that existed in perpetuity. It usually had sunset provisions, and I believe at that time, every two years, it had to be reauthorized by the governor, and Governor Mario Cuomo never failed to reauthorize that. So at the time that Phil Caruso endorsed Mario Cuomo for governor, he had a 12-year relationship with him as governor, during which time the governor did a great deal for Phil Caruso in his plight to improve the lot and life of New York City police officers. I don't know what Patrick Lynch is thinking or what crock of bull he's trying to sell his members that Kathy Hochul has done in this brief stint that she's had as an interim governor. She's done nothing for anyone but herself. Now, maybe if he had turned around and endorsed Andrew Cuomo and could make the same argument for Andrew that I made for his father Mario, which I don't think you could make, he might have a better leg to stand on. Right now, he looks like the man on stilts in the circus, and somebody needs to hit that piece of wood with a samurai sword and knock Patrick Lynch out of office because he is a complete schmuck. This was his opportunity to do something right, and even when it's as plain as the nose on your face, Lynch can't see it. Schmuck. He's got to go. If people in the New York City uh, PBA can't see that, I'm sorry for you. But if this didn't convince you by now, uh, I don't think anything will. But I think Lynch is going to find that he made a bonehead move because Lee Zeldin is going to win and he's going to remember it. Now, maybe Lynch is thinking, well, if he's really pro-law enforcement, he's going to help you. Don't count on it because we've had that happen, too. Phil Caruso endorsed and fought very heavily for Rudy Giuliani. And Rudy Giuliani, without question, was a pro-law enforcement mayor. But to contrast that with what I said about Mario Cuomo just a few minutes ago, although Giuliani was very good for the police department as a law enforcement entity because he needed them to uh, further his agenda in the city of New York, funding the police department, making sure it had resources. He was not very good for New York City police officers as municipal laborers. And there is a distinction between the two. Management may want a pro-law enforcement 
candidate that's willing to fund the agency. Labor wants a pro-municipal labor governor or government in place to be able to fund the salaries that they wish they could get. So there's the reasoning there. There's the distinction between why Phil Caruso's move to endorse Mario Cuomo was a very smart one, because having done that, Pataki saw that the loyalty of the PBA to a candidate was steadfast, and they wouldn't just leave. If he had suddenly abandoned Mario Cuomo after all Mario Cuomo had done for him, legislatively for the PBA, and then endorsed Pataki, Pataki would have looked at Caruso and said, are you kidding me? What sort of fair-weather friend is this guy? I'm not getting in bed with him. But Pataki respected Caruso for what he did. And after he won, a dialogue was opened, and they enjoyed a very good relationship. I only hope that a good dialogue can be opened with Lee Zeldin. I think perhaps with a new PBA president, that might be even more possible. Hint, hint. So that's what's going on, for those of you who don't know what's going on in the country right now. We have a big shift. One last thing I wanted to talk about, aside from the big shift in the polling and the future of New York City at stake. I don't know about the rest of you, but I am not buying hook, line, and sinker this entire story about this man who broke into the home of Nancy Pelosi when she wasn't home alleged looking for her to break her kneecaps and interrogate her and make her speak the truth and supposedly smacked a hammer into the head of her husband, Paul. Nancy Pelosi is the Speaker of the House. Unbelievably so, but she is. And like it or not, she's third in line succession to the Presidency of the United States. You're trying to tell me that the home of the person who's third in line for the presidency of the United States, is not secured by something other than a video camera? They lived in a gated community. How did this man get into this gated community and get into this house? There's no security system in the home of the Speaker of the House that would alert someone. There are no locks on the doors. There's no police car standing outside, no Capitol Police car, no security detail, nothing. I live in New York, and I can tell you that when Donald Trump was president, even when he wasn't in New York, and he didn't come into New York very often because he knew what an inconvenience it was to the people, he was actually very courteous that way, but even when he wasn't in New York City, um, you couldn't drive down the side street of 56th Street by Trump Tower, and he wasn't there. Now, I don't expect the Speaker of the House, to have the same level of protection as the sitting president. But as a person who's only three in line, I would expect there'd be something there that this man just couldn't waltz in. So I'm half wondering if it's true or if I'm half wondering if they're trying to portray this as uh, the fanaticism of the far right and their desire uh, to eliminate uh, Nancy Pelosi in in an attempt to gain some sympathy. If it is... That's really pretty uh, pretty cheap in terms of stunts. But time will tell. All I know is we have less than one week to go to, as I said, one of the, one of the most pivotal elections uh, in my lifetime. And I hope to make sure you go out and vote. We'll be following it closely here. We'll be trying to give you several updates with podcasts throughout the week. 
including hopefully a podcast on Election Day itself. Until then, for The Jamie Dury Show, I'm Jamie Dury.